a sip instead of yours. If you're looking for a way to get more positive things going into your life, I'd encourage you to check out our friends at Christian Living Magazine. You can find out everything you need at ChristianLivingMag.com. Saturday to everyone. It is, what is today? February 13th. Tomorrow is Valentine's Day. Gentlemen, just letting you know, giving you your friendly reminder that tomorrow is Valentine's Day in case you have forgotten. (laughs) All right. So we are continuing on with the gospel according to John. It is lesson number four. Lesson number four. Chapter 2 is what we're starting, and we're going to start and actually go all the way through chapter number 2. It's 25 verses. Um, it's it's two—it's basically two a two-part thing. There's two parts and then an introduction into the, the chapter 3. Um, but you know what? It's, it's just one of those things. It would either be two really, really short ones, or we're going to kind of just push through them. And, and so today, we're just going to go ahead and push through them and get through chapter 2 completely— and it's it's a great chapter to go through, so I think we're going to have a good time. And this is Wedding Miracle, so we're going to see the, the Wedding Miracle and the Turning of Tables. And there's a bit we're going to talk about with this, because there's... When you hear people want to discuss and want to say there are discrepancies and there are inconsistencies throughout the Word, uh, the, some of what they talk about is within the Gospel messages themselves, because you have three Gospels that work almost completely in tandem, and then you have the gospel according to John, which is totally different. It, it's the same stories, same messages, but they record different things, and he's he's approaching it from a completely different aspect. John approaches it from a personal aspect, dealing with the personal miracles and personal ministry of Jesus, versus, you know, interpersonal, person to person, rather than massive, big miracles all, all the time. So there, there are some differences, and we see different bits and pieces recorded between them. And so we get a broader picture of the ministry of Jesus when we read them all and we read them together. And and it's not inconsistent. They're looking at different aspects. That that's something that we we need to understand is they're they're different aspects of his ministry that that are being focused on. So let's go ahead and let's see if I can move some of this around a little bit. Not exactly happy with where everything's lying today. Here we go. All right. Here we go. We're going to go John chapter 2. We'll read the entirety, and then we'll, we'll dig into this. Again, we're going to go through the English Standard Version. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, excuse me, said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars filled there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. 
And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And and making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name, when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. All right, so that's chapter 2. Arguably... 23 to 25 could and maybe even should be the beginning of chapter 3. Uh, but remember, this when these were written, when the Bible was written, the, the these verses and chapters were not a part of it. Uh, they were added later, and it was just done in for easy referencing so that you could reference different sections throughout Scripture. Um, unfortunately, we, we almost treat it like it is part of the Scripture anymore, and in that we— we use that as liberty to potentially take things out of context, and we see that a lot, which is part of the reason why we do this. Part of the reason that Sip and Study is designed in such a way that we go literally verse by verse, line by line, we dissect, we go into the Greek or the Hebrew or the Aramaic, and we discover what was actually being said, because it's very important when we study the Word of God that we take it in context of what was intended. Yes, it is a living document. It is a breathing document. It can mean new things to us today, and it can speak new things to us today. In fact, when we read it, oftentimes God says different things to us throughout it. He reveals to us different elements. However, it is still vitally important that we read this in the way it was intended to be taken, because that, if you don't do that, you're you're going to take things and you not saying you're going to, but you can take things wildly out of context. And especially if you pick a verse here, pick a verse there, you can essentially make any document, even the Bible, say whatever you want it to say. And we see it all the time. 
And that's that's why we get so many uh, very interesting and, and kind of crazy um, religious groups who who uh, claim claim to believe in the Bible, claim to believe in Jesus, but go way off the mark. Way, way, way. So it's vitally important that we take a look at this and we, we dig into it and we take it in the context of what's being said. All right, so this breaks down into three basic sections. First, we see wedding wine, verses 1 to 12. 13 to 22, we get to the cleansing of the temple. And 23 to 25, we, we see uh, and learn about Jesus being able to discern people's hearts, knowing about them. Let's get into this. 1 and 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Let's stop at verse 1. Third day. First of all, this is not a... a this is not in secession. We've already seen a couple times the next day, the next day, right? The following day. No, this is not in secession to that. This is actually the third day from the last time John said the next day. Okay. So if you if you look back, just a, a touch back, right at the end of uh, chapter one, we'll, we'll see that and we'll get there, right? This is the next day. So three days after that, right? Third day after that. Um Cana was about four and a half miles from Nazareth, just for a reference point, but it would take about three-day walk from where John was baptizing, so where they were at at the, at the Jordan. Okay, If we look at verse 43 of chapter 1, the next day, this is where we're talking about, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Okay, He wanted to go. When we got to Philip and we got to Nathaniel, this was not in Galilee. Okay. They hadn't left yet. So now we had that. There was the next day. Jesus decided to go to Galilee, found Philip, said, follow me. Three days later, so following that, so on the third day from that point on, from that journey. Okay. On the third day into the journey of to Canaan, or excuse me, Cana. Keep saying that this morning. I'm not sure why. Okay. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now, here's where we we want to pay attention to this. This was a wedding invitation. Jesus just decided, I want to go to Galilee. Now, mind you, Jesus is God in the form of man. He understands. He knows. None of this is a surprise to him. So chances are he knew there was a wedding coming up. He knew what was going on. But from the outside looking in, Jesus wanted to go there. No one else really knew that he was doing that. He kept most of that to himself, according to scriptures, what we can read through the scriptures, right? But Jesus's mother, Mary, was there. Now, if we read this, as it's written, the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. The language used here would indicate that Mary was invited to the wedding. But in this culture, Family is everything, and that connection is everything. Oh, my son, who's a, a rabbi, who's a teacher, would put him into a special position in the community, uh, is here. Oh, well, bring him. Well, he brought his disciples. Bring them. Bring them. Bring them. Come, come. Because it's a celebration. These feasts, these wedding feasts were huge, and they encompassed pretty much everybody. Unless you were an enemy, and I mean like a bad enemy, you basically got invited. And so it was a really, really big thing, and it was not uncommon, and in, in really in that type of a culture, even today, it's not uncommon. They're, they're going to invite people. It is a very normal, normal thing. But most likely, 
Mary was invited, and because Jesus and his disciples showed up, it was, hey, my other son, or my son Jesus was here with me, uh, he just showed up. Oh, bring him and bring his disciples. Come on. And so that's that's just kind of how that what how that went, right? You read into the language of this, and we recognize that most likely she was invited. This was not a Jesus going, hey, there's a wedding happening that I'm supposed to be at, right? So let's get going. No, this was a uh, an invited because his mom was there. Okay, three to five. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Okay, they have no wine. Now, throughout the Old Testament, we'll, you can see through really throughout. They talk about wine quite a bit. The wine is a sign of joy, right? It's not just a it's not just a symbol though. It is something that they actually drank. They actually did this stuff, right? But wine was a symbol of joy, not drunkenness. Their drunkenness is a bad thing, right? But wine itself is not a bad thing. And they saw this as a sign of joy for a sign of celebration and and really it was safer to drink wine, <laughs> and we, we even see in New Testament terms where where it was used in medicinal purposes because the water could be so bad that it would upset people's stomachs and cause issues, and and so drinking wine was more uh, normal than drinking, just say, the direct water because you can get sick from just drinking the direct water. So drinking wine was normal, but it was also a joyous thing that you did a celebration like this, you would always have that because it's a very joyous thing. Even if you were poor, you were expected, basically, essentially expected to to provide wine or to have wine for a jooyous event and a joyous occasion because wine is, it's just with joy. It just is. And we see that even culturally today. You see people walking down the street, um, you know, with a bottle of wine, it's, it's oh man, they must have something something nice going on, right? So it's it's a kind of a, a normal thing. And we see this throughout. We can look at Psalms. Let's look at Psalm uh, Psalm 104.15. And wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. But we also see in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 10, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. And then getting out of the Old Testament, looking again into the New Testament, but with, uh, and another gospel, go to Matthew. Chapter 26, verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus declaring there, I will not drink the fruit of the, fruit of the vine, will not drink of wine again until, so that was Jesus being crucified, right? Or right around the crucifixion. So anyway, wow, lots of typos. My apologies. But, uh, keep going. So this could also be a, this could be a symbol right here. They, they didn't have wine. They ran out of wine. This could be symbolic for the lack of faith that the first century Judaism had, but it was still a physical thing, right? This was, they physically ran out of wine. This again, kind of like Nathaniel being under the fig tree, there's symbolism potentially in that, but it was a physical thing. Uh, this here, same concept, same concept. It might be one of those things that they're, wow, is that an interesting coincidence or is is this showing some divine intention here, right? But it is a physical thing. They ran out of wine, right? Now, in this area, the families and people are mainly poor. This is not a wealthy area, not a wealthy community, okay? So they didn't have a ton of money, but people and families would save up for a very long time. In fact, most families in that culture, 
when they had a child, they would begin to save some money for the wedding feast because these weddings were extravagant. And these feasts could actually go on for seven to 10 days. They could go for a week or two, right? Very, very long activities, long, drawn out, gigantic celebrations. And so if you're poor, you've got to manage things really tightly and really well. And it's not uncommon, again, as we saw with Jesus coming into the picture and his disciples coming in, it's not uncommon to have people just show up and say, oh, yes, come join us in this feast. You're, you're, you will be an honored guest. Come, come. You're not a regular guest because you weren't invited. You're now an honored guest. And so you get brought in. So it's, it's not too uncommon to have that thing. But running out of the wine would be an embarrassment to the family. Okay, This would be an embarrassment to them. So uh, not saying that to be rude. It's just what it is. Okay, so they needed the wine and and Mary, Jesus' mother, recognizes this. Now, his response, woman, what does this have to do with me? This is not 20th or 21st century America. This is not Jesus talking down to his mother. We hear this and and this is one of those things that I used to tease people all the time about. Um, People hear the term woman and some some people find it offensive. Whoa, you can't call me just woman. That's that's rude. Not necessarily. And in fact, in that day, uh, and in this context, the 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 phrasing that this is done in, it is a sign of respect. Jesus is being respectful and showing her grace and showing her dignity and showing her honor. This is not a down talking. This is a lady of respect, mother. Yes, mother. Like, but it's not just that. It was a recognizing her position. This was a good thing. Okay. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Time has not yet come. This is a reference to the fulfillment of the work on the cross as seen throughout the gospel. Uh, John has a tendency to point to that, pointing to the hour of time. His time is the fulfillment on the cross. That's what he's referring to here is this, my time's not come. You know, this could be seen a couple ways. It could be seen as my time to start doing visible ministry has not yet come and or my time to fulfill has not yet come. Okay. Now, John's emphasis is on the fulfilling at the cross. It could also be an indication of my my public ministry in these public works is very visible works. It's not time for that yet. And that might be why he does this a little bit more in secret to where what we see is the only people who recognize this is Mary, Jesus, the servants, and his disciples. It's all we know. It's all we get to see, the people who understand and know what happened, right? Now, Mary then asserts herself. You see in verse 5, his mother said to the servants, now look at this, she doesn't respond to him. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother turns and says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Mary asserts herself and instructs the servants to do whatever Jesus says. This right here to me indicates it is a a valuable language piece, and it indicates that she had no doubt whatsoever that not only could Jesus, but that Jesus would do this. Six and ten. Now, there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. These water pots held two or three measures. If you look in the Greek, they held two to three measures, uh, or mitrias. A mitria was roughly 35 liters or about 10 gallons, which is how we get the 20 to 30 gallons. Uh, and these were used for 
for purification. These were used for bathing, cleaning. These were purification vessels. In modern-day tongue, Jesus saw six bathtubs and said, fill them to the brim. Modern tongue for you. Yeah, a little, a little weird, a little weird, but God has a tendency to use the humble, right? Okay, so it's what it was. They were, they were used for rites of purification, for bathing, for washing. Jesus said to the servants, fill these jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some water out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. We'll stop here. So a couple pieces that we need to take into consideration here. Jesus, when he did his miracles and he did these types of signs, as John uses, which you'll see and we'll talk about, he uses the term signs. It's really miracles. This is what we hear in other places and what we're used to. Um, he has a tendency to much like the father, to wait for faith. He looks for faith to work. It's not that he is limited and can't do the works. They wait for the works. Remember, Jesus being the word, Jesus is the creator. Who was faithful? Who was he waiting for faith for when he created the universe and he created earth? He wasn't waiting for faith from anyone. He's not reliant. God is not reliant on us. But... He waits for us. He waits for us. He wants us to have faith. He wants to bless us and work through us and do things for us, but he waits for us to have faith to trust in him for that. He's not reliant on that. No, there's a purpose for it, okay? And it's not a need. It is a purpose, okay? So Jesus waits for, for faith, and we know, and just from the language here, Mary had unwavering faith in this, which... To me, seems to indicate now this is something that some would argue with me on. This is not biblical truth. Okay. This is one of those when we when I read this, it seems to indicate to me chances are Jesus had done stuff when he was younger. We don't have reference to that inside the Bible. Okay, there's no references to Jesus doing miracle work other than having massive knowledge that impressed rabbis, that impressed teachers, right? We see that, but we don't have reference to Jesus um, actually producing and providing actual like other manifestation miracles. Okay, we have that in some of what we would know as the apocrypha, which is of of questionable authority, right? Whether or not that's that's rightfully so, and that's why it's not in the scriptures. It was not part of the canonization process. There are some some indications and some signs of things that Jesus did as a child, but we don't actually see anything like that in the scriptures. We don't know for certain what Jesus did, if anything, as a child. But with the language that we have here that Jesus, that, that Mary had no doubt whatsoever, tells me that there was a good likelihood that she saw Jesus do some things that led her to have full faith I flip the light switch, the light switch, the light is going to come on. Jesus is going to turn this into wine. No doubts. Just what does this have to do with me? Turns to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And walks away. Okay. So, we know Mary had faith, and it would appear that the servants had faith, at least some, because they were being obedient. And obedience can be an indication of faith. Okay. Now, if we look here at uh, Matthew 15, 28, Matthew 15, 28, we're going to see another portion to where uh, needing faith, quick recap, um, 
In fact, I'm, I'm just going to go back a little bit further into this. We'll read a little bit more. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre, or Tyre, excuse me, and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, Canaanites were not Jewish. Okay? Uh, there becomes this little bantering back and forth of um, Jesus saying, I came for the Jews. I came to work and do these things through the Jews, right? And, you know, it's not right to give a child's bread to the dog. Sounds really mean. It's getting a point across, okay? Um, but she came before him, okay? And, and she said, yes, Lord, yet even dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Again, notice that sign of respect and dignity. Goes from, it's not right to give the dog your child's food. Take the food from your child and give it to the dog. To turning from that and recognizing and going to straight respect. O woman, great is your faith. And then blesses her by saying, be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. They wait. God has a tendency to wait for faith. He wants faith. He wants us to trust in him to do these things. And that's just another great example. It was kind of a dual purpose thing, but it was it's such a, a beautiful spot. Anyway, when the master of the feast, now master of the feast was much like a master of ceremony for major events today, right? This is the person you could almost see. Some of us don't necessarily even have that, right? That concept is even lost to some of us. Think of it as like a, the head waiter, the guy who's making sure that everything happens when it's supposed to happen and that the food is the way it's supposed to be. Things go where they're supposed to go. It's the one behind the scenes running the show and making sure everything goes smoothly. He's in charge of the rest of the thing. He's like the planner who's there with the headset on when they didn't have headsets and directing and orchestrating everything like that. Okay, this is the guy who specifically, food portion, right, makes sure that everything goes where it's supposed to go, when it's supposed to go there. Everyone's taken care of. Okay, that is who this is. This isn't like the dad. This isn't a fancy term for dad. This is a person who's running and orchestrating the food and drink section during the entirety of this feast. Okay, when the master of the feast uh, tasted the water that became wine, he didn't know where it came from, but the servants did. The master of the feast called to the bridegroom, called to the to the groom, the husband, and said to him, "Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now." He calls to the groom and exclaims, "What a big surprise this is! You've been serving good wine already, and now you've brought out the best wine." This is, wow. This, it would be an indication of, guess what? There's there's more and there's better. This would be such an indication that they have more, right? That there, there's more money, that they're better off. This was an honoring thing rather than a what should have been a massive dishonor to the family because they ran out of wine. Now it's a, a thing that's actually showing honor and blessing on them. Okay, 11, this... The first of his signs Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. There's a bit in here. First of his signs, like I said earlier, John refers to miracles, the miracles as signs. Okay, these are signs of Jesus' deity. 
Uh, he does so to shed light on the reality that they were performed to show his divine nature as the true Messiah or Christ. Uh, and John records seven signs throughout the gospel. This is his first public sign or miracle. Again, like I said earlier, some apocryphal writings, which apocryphal basically just means the doubtful authenticity, authenticity um, of outside, they're outside scripture and they're of doubtful authenticity. Okay. Speak of a childhood signs, but there are no writings of this in the actual scriptures themselves. Although Mary's attitude does give an indication that she had no doubt that Jesus was able, capable, and would do this, which again, to me, leads an indication that, and especially when we read the Gospels, we don't have a history of his childhood, right? I mean, it's it's okay. It's not without. It's not beyond question. It's not beyond belief, and. Quite frankly, I don't think it goes against any, I mean, it might go against some groups' doctrinal stances and theological stances, but at the end of the day, um, we just we just don't know. I'll just be real and honest with you. We just don't know because we're not told. And we weren't there. <laughs> take, take both of those. We don't know. We weren't there and we weren't told. So therefore, how, how would one know? Um, Anyway, let's take a look at the at glory, right? When it says uh, this is the first of signs Jesus did in Cana, and it manifests his glory. We see it in, in chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh. This is drawing back to the glory, right? Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, right? So this is just pulling back to that same piece that he's already pulled from. Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is God, and this is an indication of his glory. We have seen his glory. This is part of the glory that we have seen, right? He's continuing and tying that back to that piece of the story. But notice this, and his disciples believed in him. This is another spot. They saw him perform a miracle or a sign, and they believed, right? They believed. Verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Yes, Jesus had brothers. All right, there you go. In the scriptures, right there. So Capernaum was a day's journey or less. It was easily a day's journey. Okay, that's just fine. It was an easy, let me say that a better way. It was an easy day's journey. Uh, so it was a day's journey or less from Cana, and it's where Jesus used as a headquarters after uh, John the Baptist was imprisoned. But that's later. Hey, Sip and Studiers. As you may know, the family and I have been called into missions and are now officially missionaries to the church in Pakistan. Can't tell you how excited we are for this. It's a great opportunity, and we are so blessed for it. But if you've known anybody who's gone into missions, you know, can't do it on our own. We need people to be partnered with us, partnered in prayer, and yes, also in financial support. But there's so much more. If you feel God tugging at your heart, letting you know that he has a plan for you to make an impact in the church in Pakistan, we'd love for you to reach out to us and partner with us. And you can do that and more at chogglobal.org slash dsbrown. That's chogglobal.org slash dsbrown, as in Drew and Sonny Brown. Now, back to the study. All right, getting on to cleansing of the temple. The rest of this is going to go a bit faster. Sorry, that was the big part. The rest of this is going to go a little bit faster, though. But here we see Jesus' first major confrontation with the Jewish leaders. This is the other Gospels. 
This is something where this is one of those parts where uh, some people want to say there's some inconsistencies. Mm, not really. The other gospels record a single temp- temple cleaning just prior to the crucifixion. Like you can look in, and, and I don't have it here. You can look it up for yourself. Mark chapter 11, verses 15 to 19. There is a later, right before the crucifixion, Jesus goes and cleanses the temple. This is actually a record of a second, or actually this would be the first, that would have been the second temple cleaning. So there are two temple cleanings that Jesus has performed. This is the early one, and this is the first major confrontation with the Jewish leaders that happens for Jesus. 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This is the Passover. You can take a look at Exodus um, Take a look in Exodus chapter 12 to read about the Passover. Uh, now, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, went up both in elevation, because it is a physical elevation change, and prestige, because Jerusalem was the actual capital. Okay. Now, John references two other Passovers throughout uh, throughout the gospel. So there's three years for Passovers, three years. An unknown festival in 5.1, the Festival of Booths. Booths. <laughs> I know the, uh, the the words that pop up, the, the they sometimes say that funny, but the Festival of Booths that we just finished reading about in Nehemiah uh, in chapter 7, and the dedication, or Hanukkah, in chapter 10. So there's several different festivals and celebrations that are recorded throughout the, the gospel according to John. 14, in the temple, okay, Temple was when we when we see this word, this is where one of those things that becomes dangerous in the translation. Temple. We get one word for this. Temple. There are two terms here that are being used. And they're completely different. The temple had an inner section and an outer section. This one is the outer section in the temple. The Greek here is heron. It is the exterior area designated for non-Jewish, a.k.a. Gentile, but God-fearers, okay? They're not pagans. They're just not Jewish. But they believe in God, and they worship God, but they're not Jewish, okay? This is not to be confused with the Greek neos, the inner area where only Jews were allowed, okay? This is where it becomes handy to to actually dig in and study the word itself. Okay, so in the Heron, the outer area of the temple that is open for everyone. Okay, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there, and make okay. And we're not going to get into fifteen. We'll do that here in a minute. Okay, it was a commonplace thing to bring money and to buy sacrifices or offerings on site if you were traveling a great distance. Okay, that was normal. It was permitted, and it was actually even instructed to do in the Old Testament. Uh, in fact, we read about that in Nehemiah. You can go back into the Nehemiah and, and go back over that. Um, I knew this one was going to run long, so didn't bring a whole lot of that stuff in here. But anyway, trade was happening in the outer section, disrupting the worship of the non-Jewish God-fearers, negating the entire point of having this section, right? This area of the temple. They're disrupting worship. That completely negates the whole point of it being there. Okay. Temple tax was required for males 19 plus. You see that in Exodus 30, 13. Each one uh, who is numbered in the census shall give this half shekel, half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. 
which by the way, they actually did have a different currency than the Romans. Uh, they had their own currency. So the shekel is a 20 geras, half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Now, if we remember back in Nehemiah, when we went through Nehemiah, they dropped that down to a third shekel, but it had come back up to a half shekel standard. And again, keep in mind, they have a different currency. They did not accept and were not happy with Roman currency because it had the image of the Roman emperor on it. Okay. So this temple tax was required and Jewish officials would not accept, ah, right here, secular currency as it had, as it bore, and it bore, wow, the image of the Roman emperor. So these merchants and traders exchanged currency. They sold offerings and sacrificial animals at an extremely high price. Now, this it's a very common belief and understanding that they were selling animals and offerings that were what we would consider below grade. They were not meeting the necessary requirements. We do not see that in scripture. That is extra biblical. However, it is most likely a very fair interpretation. That would be one another reason that Jesus would really uh, become zealous <laughs> for, for God's house and for the temple. Okay, But there's already two, two reasons that we can see directly in here. One, it was it was disrupting the worship, and uh, they were making a giant profit on this. This was becoming a a a a, a temple of trade. They were worshiping money. Okay, fifteen to eighteen. We'll go through this really quick. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for show us for doing these things? So the whip was more likely a tool to use to expel the animals than to whip people. And it's one of those things that some of us like to tease about a little bit, but it was most likely used to, to encourage animals to go out. That whoosh sound just helped to scare and frighten animals and to, to help drive them out. Okay. Not necessarily to whip them or to whip people, but as, as a noisemaker kind of thing, right? To, to move them out. Oh, probably worked fairly well as a psychological uh, attack towards people. Not necessarily attack. That would be a bad way to say that. But a cycle in a psychological way, I'm sure it motivated people to move to. So, But Jesus was acting with authority, which as we saw earlier in this study, not today, but earlier in the studies going back, um, that was completely unnormal. We're used to people acting with authority because in our postmodern worldview, we recognize that at least in our society, it is normal for someone to act as though they have authority because my truth is my truth. Therefore, I have authority over my truth. That was not the case. Authority was given by God or king. You had to have a ruler, whether that be God or an earthly ruler to give you said authority. People did not just have authority. This was really strange and bewildering at the time. So Jesus was acting with authority and one who could pass judgment, which also came only from God or from king, right? Ruler, whether from above or here on earth, you had to have the authority. The authority had to be given to you. Where did that come from? So this is where Jesus began to declare openly and publicly to the people that he was the Messiah because he acted with straight authority. 
that it was very bewildering. It was very, uh, let's be honest, you can read it directly from people here. It was very off-putting. People didn't understand what was going on. It was confusing, to say the least. People didn't do this. People did not act this way. This was very, very strange. But then he says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. My father's house. This right here is the direct. It is a very direct declaration and claim to be one with God. People did not say, God, you are my father. We say that as Christians, right? Our father who is in heaven, right? God, the father. Jews were not sitting there saying, God is my father. That is not. No, they said father was Abraham. If they went to that degree, it would be father Abraham. God was not attainable as a father. He is God. And so for Jesus to say, do not make my father's house a house of trade, that is a declaration of being one relation with God. This is Jesus openly declaring, I am the Messiah. Not using the words, but very openly declaring and decreeing this. Now, John points back here to Psalm 69, 9. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this half a... Did I really do that again? I did. Let's pull it up. All right. All right. Apparently, my my, uh, copying did not like doing... um, Did not like the book of Psalm at all. So I'll pull that up here really fast. Sorry, guys. Clearly, I did not proof this well enough this week. Uh, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the re- and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This is where they pull it from. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That is a direct quote from Psalm 69, 9, ze- 4. Zeal for your house has consumed me. So it is a quote. It is a pull, direct pull from that. Anyway, right? Seeing Jesus acting in such a way, the Jewish leaders asked why and how he can talk like that. They are demanding a sign, right? What sign do you show us for doing these things? We recognize this. This is normal. Take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek Wisdom is different recognitions and different ways that they approach situations. The Jews had a tendency to say, give me a sign. People who were very legalistic, give me a sign. Give me a sign. What is your sign? I need an indication as a sign. Whereas Jew, or excuse me, Greeks seeked wisdom. They wanted to approach things from a different place psychologically. Jews, prove it, show us. Greeks, give me the wisdom, right? There's different approaches. 19 to 22, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus declares his death and resurrection, which is something, again, we see throughout the gospel here. This is one of John's big thing is pointing to that death and resurrection, but the Jewish leaders don't understand. This is one of those hindsight 2020 things, right? Jesus later declares that he is the resurrection and the life. We see this in chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 
Okay, hindsight 2020. The temple, this is the temple word here, uh, or excuse me, not here, excuse me. The temple, neos, the inner temple, the temper, temple for the Jewish believers only, began around 20 BC, somewhere between 20 and 18 BC. Um, and it took about two years to complete. Okay, so some say 2019, some say 20 to 18, some... It's it's one twenty one to twenty twenty one to nineteen. Some say twenty to eighteen. Somewhere right around twenty and two twenty BC, and then took two years to complete the larger temple where they were in right now, having this discussion. Heron was not finished at this point. It was still under construction. It wasn't even done yet. In fact, it wasn't finished being built until AD sixty four or sixty six, depending on depending on your dating system. Somewhere between 64 and 66. It wasn't even done yet. Crazy, right? And that's why they're saying, we've been working on this for 46 years. They didn't say, but they might as well have. It's not even done yet. And you're going to fix it and rebuild it, everything, in three days? You're nuts. That's where they're going. You're nuts. 23 to 25, discerning hearts. This one's really quick, guys. Really quick. 23 to 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. Mind you, chapter 3, we're going to get into this really soon. Um, he starts talking to Nicodemus right away. And this is an introduction into Nicodemus. I almost, I was this close to just putting this on the next lesson, but I, I just really felt like we needed to keep this together here. So this is an, introdu an introduction into the Nicodemus piece. Okay. Many believed in his name. This is the saving power. And this is the focus of this gospel. John's gospel here is being saved by faith in Jesus, right? The resurrection of Christ. Belief, that is the focus. That is the where it's all at. Okay, and that's what he's pointing to, and that's what he's focusing on. Now, they believed and entrusted. Believed and entrusted are actually the same word here in Greek, pistinu, or excuse me, pistiu, and is used as a play on words. Okay, they trusted him. And he didn't entrust himself, didn't trust himself back to them. Okay, this is a play on words. Jesus knew that some were just simply amused and entertained by what he was doing. They didn't have TikTok. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't bury themselves in the phone. They didn't even have books. Like, really, you couldn't just flap open a book. There was no printing press. They didn't have these things. That was the scriptures were in scrolls and and inside and you had to have special permission to look at it, right? Not everybody got that stuff, okay? That education was different. People did different things. And so entertainment came in all sorts of flavors and colors, okay? People were amused and entertained by what he was doing and saying. And so, yeah, they believed, sure. I'll follow this for a while. Why not? It's fun. We see a lot of that stuff today even, right? I'll follow that for a while. It's fun. Why not? Well, he knew that some of them would just fall away after they started to realize what was happening. Whoa, my heart's not really in that. That's a little beyond. I mean, I'm not sure. That's not what my family taught. 
That's not that's not the same thing that my family believed forever. So mm, I don't know, Jesus. Right. That's kind of the direction he was going. So he didn't entrust himself back to them. That's Drew interpretation. Okay, not gospel associated. Read that directly. That is Drew interpretation. But uh, now he knew all people. This is an indication of Jesus's omniscience. He's aware. He knows whether that means that Jesus is fully omniscient or he gets bits and pieces like because he is in man form, right? This is God in man. But it's very apparent when Jesus talks to people, he knows. He's aware. We even saw it earlier. I saw you under the fig tree. How? There was nobody there. There's nobody at the fig tree. Jesus knows. Okay, Jesus is one with the Father. He's one with the Spirit. And he is aware. He is aware. And this, Okay, now two examples of Jesus showing his knowledge of people's hearts. Because this is it. Jesus know, knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in a man. Two examples are coming right up. His encounters with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. It's chapters 3 and chapters 4. Okay, what can we take away from this? What can we learn from this? First, we see that Jesus first showed his power, and then Jesus shows his authority. Showed his power by turning water into wine, and by recognize this was being obedient to his mother. This was Jesus being obedient to his mother. He showed his power. Okay, and... He showed his authority in the cleansing of the temple, which again, keep in mind, that was not normal. That is not the way people act. That having that authority and and being one who acts like they can cast judgment is not normal. Jesus being a rabbi, a teacher, that was not normal even for a rabbi. They were to teach what was written, not go beyond that. Did not have authority, according to everyone else. A rabbi doesn't have that kind of authority. You can't do this. What? Where are you getting this from? So he shows power, then he shows authority. Okay. Okay. So when we see that God's power is at work, we see that. We see that when God's power is at work, he shows himself by doing things in a way that seem out of order to us because he saved the best wine for last. Okay. When God works, it's going to seem out of order. It seems weird. God, it doesn't work, but hindsight's 2020, right? God works. It might seem out of order to us. We see that God wants things to be used in their proper way. The temple was for worship, not for profit. Right? God wants things, especially his people, now that we're the temple for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. Right? We see that. It went from God being in the temple with some to God being in Jesus dwelling with the people to now God dwelling in the people. Right? Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. He wants us to be used the proper way. Way, which means we got to look to God to find out what that proper way is. Okay. We see that Jesus declares his being the Messiah or the Christ, Hebrew, Greek, it's fine, the anointed one, right? To those who are listening and paying attention, much like how God declared to Moses, I am. 
I don't know about you, but just hearing I am, that doesn't say I am God, right? It's it's one of those you have to be listening and paying attention. God's going to speak to you, right? But Jesus is declaring he is the Messiah. He is the Christ to those who are really paying attention and watching for it. Okay. And we also see that things even the disciples weren't certain about were made clear to them when they looked back. It's one of the reasons why I love this gospel. You get little notes to where John's writing in here and says, and then the disciples realized after he died, we remembered this and said, whoa, it makes sense now, right? They recognize and brought it in saying, we recognize this when we look back. We recognize what, what he was saying. So pay attention to what God says to you and the way he works in your life, because hindsight really can be twenty twenty. When we look back, that's when things start to make sense of how God's working. Thank you, Lord, for today, for your word, for your gospel message, for your son, Jesus, coming and dying for us. Oh, God, thank you so much for this. We ask that you you empower us, that you send your Holy Spirit upon us, and that you give us wisdom beyond measure. Wisdom that we know doesn't come from us, but it comes from you. God, help us be that shining light into the world. Help us be a way that people see your glory. And God, also keep us humble. Help us know that it's not our glory, but it is your glory that is shining. Help the things that we do be for you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, there will be no sip and study next week. I will be out of town. Sonny and I will be out of town, so we will not be here doing this. But uh, we will be back the following week. So we're going to get one week off here, and then we'll be back at it. Guys, have a great weekend. Be blessed, and uh, be safe out there. There's a lot of snow if you're in the Boise area. Lots of snow out there. So, uh, But be safe, be blessed, and be a blessing to the world. Bye-bye.